Mr. Levin, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Good to be with you. You know, my first question will be a broad one, and it'll partially quote from the titles of one of your recent articles. Why does a strong, united America require effective criminal justice policy? Yes, well, that's a great and very timely question. Um, the uh, Basically, you can easily see the connection between trusting the police, trusting the justice system, and trusting you know the government writ large. Now, of course, a healthy skepticism of all those is definitely warranted. Uh, I think the, the problem comes when, of course, the uh, distrust becomes so great that it, uh, in the context of policing, for example, people don't report crimes to the police, they don't cooperate as witnesses, and of course, in the context of democracy, uh, opting out can mean not voting. And I was kind of fascinated to see some academic research recently that demonstrated that uh, people who actually have been um, repeatedly pulled over, uh, you know, wrongfully by mistake, um, and and have those negative interactions with the police are actually less likely to vote, adjusting for all other factors. So there is this thread uh, that ties together these um, issues of distrust and issues of kind of legitimacy of our system being challenged. And so I think that um, uh, what's interesting really is you have this on the far end of both uh, sides of the political spectrum. Of course, you have uh, uh, folks on the right who are uh, uh, very uh, skeptical of want to get rid of the Department of Justice and folks on the left who want to abolish the police. Uh, so whether you're talking about the FBI or the police, there are real problems uh, that, that we shouldn't whitewash. But um, I think we also have to recognize that um, there's a reason like the, you know, based on Thomas Hobbes, the main reason that the human beings come together to form governments is to protect their lives and liberties, and uh, that there is this essential role for government when one person's actions infringe on the rights and liberties, and of course, in some cases, with murder the lives of, of other people, and we have to have government with enough legitimacy to step into that breach and and um, ensure that uh, we have, um, uh, hopefully, a, a society that's both um, has reasonable levels of safety and reasonable levels of liberty. It's a delicate balance, but there's no doubt that there's, there's a role for government in that. Balance is so important in the law, right? So many legal principles, legal doctrines, rules of law uh, turn on balance. And this country was founded, right, under the idea that we balance the government's ability to maintain order and the people's ability to maintain their rights. And that's been a tough balance to strike over the decades and centuries. Where are we now as a country um, in terms of being able to do that? Yes, well, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the we have a lot of advantages in terms of, of course, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the founding aspects of this country was the idea that we should be governed by the rule of law, not the rule of man, and particularly not of a monarchy. Um, and, you know, it's certainly um, uh, the idea that we all have to live under the same laws uh, uh, was very important to uh, our nation's founders. And um, so basically, whether regardless of your race, your station in life, uh, your connections or not having connections, theoretically, at least, everyone should be subject to the same laws and should be able to avail themselves of the of, of the justice system when um, they feel someone else has violated their rights. So um, I think that uh, 
uh, we're um, uh, still in a good place relative to much of the world on this. Um, uh, certainly, there's places uh, across the world where people are routinely, um, you know, locked up without a trial. Although I did just read about a case in the U.S. where somebody's been in jail for 11 years without a trial, which was astonishing and, and deeply disturbing. But that is very much the exception, of course, in the U.S. That you are, we have this constitutional right to trial, even though, you know. Uh, over 95% of cases are resolved by plea bargains, which is an issue that we're, we're, uh, we need to address in many ways to make that system more transparent. Um, but I think the um, uh, we have, we're actually, when you even compare us to other developed countries, we're pretty strong on the due process side, on the ability of defendants to um, you know challenge the government. Um, uh, but where we're really, uh, I think, uh, certainly well behind uh, countries like Germany and Europe, where I recently visited the prisons, is on the correctional side uh, in that, um, you know, if you look at what's going on in our jails and prisons, the number of people who are dying, uh, you know, young young people is is uh, really shocking. And obviously, the conditions in many instances are inhumane and certainly don't lend themselves to um, rehabilitation. So the good news is we are seeing states like South Carolina and North Dakota, they've taken steps to change uh, how they doing incarceration. There's certainly work left to be done, but they're they're um, taking lessons from some of the European countries on that. So I think it is always helpful to kind of um, uh, look at um, uh, how other um, uh, countries uh, do things and identify areas where they can learn from us and we can learn from them. I think that uh, uh, the, um, uh, but overall, I would say that uh, we definitely have work to do. If you look at um, uh, kind of the the levels of, of tr trust in terms of is do most Americans think that the everybody's going to be treated equally in the justice system? I think that uh, there's a lot of skepticism there, and rightfully so. I mean, in terms of we know people that are African American are subject to disparities. People that are uh, low income can't afford, in many instances, a, a capable attorney, so they're at a disadvantage. And of course, then you could look at people who are disabled, people that are um, don't speak English, and they're really up against it in, in, in different ways throughout the justice system. Um, so uh, I think what the at the end of the day, what we need to do is make sure we tailor the way people are treated into the justice system based on the vulnerabilities, the uh, challenges they have as they come into the system, which uh, and then rather than try to fit a square peg into a round hole and, and just say, OK, well, you know, somehow we've uh, because uh, the um, uh, that it's fair if everybody's simply treated the same. Of course, if you've got somebody who's deaf and can't hear the court proceedings or can't hear the police officer's command, yeah, they treated the same as everyone else, but uh, no one would say that's fair. So that's why the justice system kind of has to adapt to individually tailor itself to the difference, differences uh, of, of people coming in in terms of what their needs are, what their, um, uh, in some instances, their um, vulnerabilities and limitations are. You know, you mentioned trust. Trust is so important. I feel like so many people have an issue with trust because of something called prosecutorial discretion. It's a term that in our criminal justice system is likely the most important term. Could we, should we do anything about prosecutorial discretion in terms of more oversight, in terms of more checks and balances? Is that a possibility even? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the 
Um, we do need uh, some level of prosecutorial discretion, and part of the reason for that is, of course, we have this massive number of criminal laws. Uh, the General Accounting Office identified 3,500 federal uh, statutory offenses, and then there's thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of more regulatory offenses. Then similarly, states like Texas and Arizona, we've counted a couple thousand criminal offenses on the books. So um, there's, and of course, prosecutors have very limited resources in terms of how many uh, prosecutors they have, you know, obviously there's a limited number of courts and judges and so forth. And, you know, most people that are prosecuted need a lawyer funded by taxpayers. So that's part of the capacity uh, constraints as well. So when you try to uh, put too many cases into a system that really can only uh, handle a certain number of cases, if, if we're going to do it, you know, by the book in terms of providing a due process, um, that that's a real problem. So prosecutors, um, uh, you know, have an important role to play in, as gatekeepers to not just, you know, bring every possible case, but only bring those cases that really advance, obviously, the core aims of the system in terms of, you know, holding people accountable for conduct that's harmed others, protecting public safety, um, deterring others from harmful conduct. So that's, um, I think that we've obviously seen a lot of controversies in the last few years in terms of um, this issue of uh, some prosecutors uh, that are referred to you know, sometimes as progressive prosecutors, um, you know, I don't think it should be an ideological. I think it ought to be, are you effective in accomplishing those aims I mentioned? But uh, some said they would typically, if you read the fine print, presumptively not prosecute certain offenses. And, you know, uh, they were elected on that promise. I think uh, in some instances, they scaled back uh, in, in terms of what types of offenses they were talking about. And they, in some instances, uh, you know, certainly did a better job of clarifying than maybe they had earlier that, yes, we're going to look at every single case that a police officer sends over, which they absolutely should do, because there can be a lot of differences in terms of what are someone's prior offenses, what are the other circumstances surrounding the, the offense at issue. But overall, I think there is a role to say uh, for prosecutors, um, you know, whether it's, for example, we know small amounts of marijuana, we actually have data that even in, in you know, here in Texas, in major cities, uh, most juries are not going to, and increasingly in suburban areas too, most juries are not going to convict someone for possessing, uh, you know, one marijuana cigarette or something. So, you know, it would be a fruitless endeavor, a prosecutor once that's kind of realized, most defense lawyers are going to tell their client not to plead to it. So, um, and then there's the whole issue of all the violent crimes and serious matters they need to put their resources into. So, um, you know, we've seen some distinctions. For example, in Dallas, the DA uh, said, well, yes, I'm going to continue presumptively prosecuting trespassing on private property if somebody's, you know, uh, just sets up shop on your lawn or something. But in terms of a homeless person sleeping in a light rail station, which is, you know, one of the issues. Um, no, I'm, I don't think the giving them a criminal record is the solution. I think they need to get services. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, we do have to realize prosecutors typically don't have a budget to pull from to get somebody into treatment. Uh, so they've got to depend on the other system stepping up to the plate where in those cases where, you know, really jail and giving someone a criminal record aren't the answers. You know, the counter argument to that is the adversarial system of justice, right? Prosecutorial discretion uh, virtually in an unlimited way is fine because we have a system in which defense lawyers are put in place and it's their job to ensure that prosecutors are held to account. What do you say to that? 
Well, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons it's important to get back to doing more trials, because, for example, if there's police misconduct, uh, if evidence was was uh, hidden or mischaracterized or there were problems in the forensics labs, which we've seen from Boston to to uh, Texas, but that those things really often only come out in the discovery process and even at the trial itself. So um, the system does need to be stress tested and defense lawyers have a huge role in that. One of the concepts I'm really fond of is that there's there's quite a bit of evidence for is holistic defense, participatory defense. There's an example, the Bronx defenders in New York, but basically they do have not just themselves as attorneys, but they partner with social service providers. And this is really important because um, the timeline of the criminal justice system in terms of how long it takes to process a case does not match up with often what someone's needs are in terms of mental health treatment. Uh, if they just had a you know uh, breakdown in terms of obviously uh, treatment for opioids, in terms of getting stable housing and employment. So uh, the Bronx defenders approach, this holistic approach, they address all those issues while, you know, as soon as possible, right, when the case comes in the door. And then it turns out when, you know, they're sitting down with the prosecutor, which sometimes is, you know, six months later to uh, talk about a plea, the prosecutor goes, well, you know what, it looks like you've already done, gone a long way in solving the this person's underlying problems that got them into the justice system, and especially if it's a nonviolent offense, uh, maybe we don't need to um, give them a lifetime scarlet letter of a conviction. We certainly don't mean to need to send them to jail if they've been doing well on a pretrial services program. So I think, you know, a lot of the challenge that we have is to try to front load the resources in the system so that we can get people um, uh, into a better place before their case is actually adjudicated and then determine whether it really does need to be adjudicated at all. And so defense lawyers have a big role in that. But I think um, when they can partner with others, that that's the uh, the ideal approach in a lot of cases. I'd like to talk to you a bit about pretrial detention and bail reform. Now, it seems that the bail stage in a criminal case has two problems, really. Number one, it seems inherently un-American to tie somebody's freedom to money. There's just something that doesn't sit well with folks about that. But more importantly, perhaps, there's a due process concern, right? That folks are being punished effectively prior to being adjudicated as uh, having committed any crime or done anything wrong. What is your position on pretrial detention and the effectiveness of bail in ensuring a defendant returns to court? Well, yeah, that's a great point. And it goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, if you just uh, treat everyone the same, uh, which is kind of an equality approach, but not looking at equity. In the example of obviously uh, somebody who's deaf, having the police or a judge verbally tell them this or that, it doesn't have the same effect. So it, that's, it's not uh, sufficient. And likewise, if you look at bail schedules, um, just having the same amount, which is what bail schedules are, the same amount everyone has to pay to obtain release prior to trial, well, obviously for someone who's wealthy and someone who's poor, that has a very different impact. And the person who's poor ends up uh, being kept in jail. And so it's not fair. And, and we need a system that's based on, you know, public safety on, on risk, not on um, how much money someone has. Um, and of course, a lot of states like New Jersey have moved uh, with very positive results in this direction. Um, and, you know, the really part of what New Jersey did was to, um, uh, they basically, I mean, virtually 
there's no more use of, of money bail there, although they didn't outright ban it. Uh, they set a very high bar. And, and essentially, it's interesting. I mean, there's just been a handful of cases since that uh, those reforms were passed a few years ago in which money bail has been used. It's something like 10 cases or something, which really demonstrated that what it was being used for before was to just keep people in jail. Um, and instead, of course, the New Jersey uh, reform said under certain conditions, judges could deny bail and say someone based on their objective objective assessment is so dangerous that no possible conditions uh, accompanying their release could reasonably ensure public safety. So, and then a key part of it is they actually funded the pretrial services, uh, court reminders to, uh, so people get texts to remind them to come to court. Um, and um, so I think what, um, uh, one of the things we do need to do is first, you know, say yes, after extensive due process and immediate appeal, uh, making sure someone has uh, good counsel that they especially obviously in the serious cases, you have a serial killer or something we all, I think, would acknowledge there are serious cases where somebody uh, does need to. And we actually have examples where someone says they're going to commit another serious crime if they're released. Um, so there are those small number of cases where someone, uh, the appropriate thing is for the court to um, uh, just deny release altogether, which referred to as preventive detention. Um, but and then in all other cases, um, Basically, the decision has been made that the this person is not going to be preventively detained, then their release should not be conditioned on um, putting up a certain amount of money. Now, if uh, the, the courts can say, OK, we've determined that you're going to be released. Here are the conditions and they have to be conditions that are attainable that the person can meet. And, um, you know, certainly there are examples of where people um, sign something, which is a non-secure bond, saying that if I don't return to court, then I'm going to agree that the government can take title to my car or, or whatever. And then, of course, you have examples of German uh, jurisdictions do um, collateral, where someone's jewelry or something is kept with the county and they get it back when they show up. But this is all very different than commercial bail bonding, because, of course, in commercial bail bonding, you're, you're out that 10 percent, which can be a lot of money if you have a hundred thousand dollar bond the $10,000, even if you do everything you're supposed to in terms of showing up to court, that's profit for the bail bondsman. And, you know, it's essentially a requirement that people buy insurance. Uh, but what's interesting is the bail bondsmen do very little to actually uh, get people back into court. I mean, if you look at most of the cases where somebody's on the lam, they're actually found by uh, law enforcement officers. The whole bounty hunter thing is really an illusion. Uh, so, um, you know, I think the, the, uh, the reality is what we know is uh, that if just by virtue of someone paying money doesn't make it any more likely uh, or less likely that they're going to commit a new offense uh, while they're on pretrial release, which is really where the public's concern is. And so there are things, though, we can do uh, to reduce that likelihood, like connecting them to treatment. Um, uh, and certainly, you know, there's there's a role for pretrial for reporting to a pretrial services officer. Um, so, you know, obviously there's conditions like someone should leave the county without permission, or if somebody is, you know, an alcoholic and that led to their crime, they're not supposed to drink alcohol. So there's conditions that the court and pretrial services agencies can enforce. Um, you obviously don't want to over-supervise people. If somebody's got a stable job, you don't want them to have to come to some pretrial services offices every week to, you know, to have to skip work to do that when they're a low-risk individual. So we have these objective assessments, these actuarial instruments, which New Jersey and other jurisdictions use, where we can match the level of supervision and conditions to the person's risks and needs. And that's really, I think, how we uh, should approach it. You mentioned earlier 
why do prisons have such a hard time rehabilitating folks? Well, um, I think that uh, certainly uh, in, in many instances, the conditions are not um, ideal, to say the least, for that. I think that um, uh, here in Texas, of course, we're having, and Florida right now, Mississippi, Louisiana, the level of heat in our prisons, we're having a number of heat-related deaths and illnesses. Um, and um, of course, crowding is another issue in many places, that the space that's theoretically supposed to be used for programming is is used for day beds when there's overcrowding. Uh, another issue is when you have a shortage of staff, which we do now in so many states across the country, then uh, prisons are on um, lockdown a, a, a higher share of the, uh, of the time. In other words, that because there's not enough staff to provide adequate security for uh, uh people in prison to be out of their cell, including going through programs, they just say, well, everybody's got to stay in their cell. Um, and so these programs that may kind of look good on paper, their implementation, <laughs> you know, is spotty. Um, and so um, I, I think that's that's part of the problem as well. Um, and then reentry is a huge challenge. In other words, even if somebody does make headway in a program while they're incarcerated, if um, they get back right into the same milieu of people, places, uh, and things that got them into trouble uh, to begin with when they're released, um, then there's a higher likelihood they're going to be returning to crime. So, you know, uh, it's very important to kind of have a continuity. And one of the things we really uh, kind of going with, as we, I was working with folks on the First Step Act in Congress and administration at the time, one of the things goals we set was to have an individualized reentry plan. And shortly after someone's incarcerated, it could be within the first 30 days, uh, this plan is developed that's going to uh, basically say, here are the programs this person can benefit from while they're in prison, and here's how that's going to be um, kind of leveraged upon their release. Here's who the people are that they need to stay in touch with while they're in prison in terms of family, ministers, um, and so forth, um, that could be a source of support when they're discharged, and so the visitation is a, is a piece of that. And um, um, there's a plan for them on you know, for example, a skill they can learn in prison that then would translate into a uh, job available in the workforce in the place they're going to be released. So this is really, and one of the things I drew in Germany that was very interesting is not only do they have, you know, a phenomenal array of uh, programs while people are in prison, but both in Germany and Norway, the probation officer, they're released onto probation from prison in almost all cases. The probation officer comes into prison within uh, six months before they're released and starts working with them to arrange employment, arrange uh, uh, housing, and they actually take them on errands outside the prison unless they're in a you know security classification that precludes that. They take them on errands to start lining things up. So it's a completely different uh, focus, but it's one that, um, frankly, in, inside the prisons, people have a lot more autonomy. They make their own meals. They go to their job themselves, you know, which could be in a factory building bumpers in Germany, right? They There's all this degree of freedom in the prison itself, um, but, and then the, but there's also this uh, and, and a tremendous concern about reentry and what's going to happen when they're released. And so the prison system takes on some quote, additional risk by allowing these folks to do certain things in prison that are correlate with what might have to do when you live in the real world. Um, so they take on that risk. Whereas in the U.S., largely, we say we're just going to, you know, try to focus the system on what's convenient for the prisons, which is to, in some instances, just let people sit in their cell and do nothing, rather than focusing on what's the 
interest of the public, which is that the person come out in hopefully in a better condition than when they came in, and that we take certain steps to reacclimate them to society, you know, as their prison sentence is concluding. Is the prison industrial complex, as it's called, responsible for some of this to a degree? Well, um, I think that, um, you know, the um, it's hard to really um, uh, assess that. I, I would say that um, the there is a lot of you know the, the most of the attention in most systems in the U.S. is on you know correctional security, and so it's on you know um, cameras, lock and key mechanisms, and all of that, and it's all that's all valid. But what I was really struck by in, in New Norway was the concept of dynamic security. And that gets into basically um, the interactions in many instances between the correctional officers and the staff. And you go through two, hour, two, two years of training to be a correctional officer in Norway. You learn psychology, um, and, you know, how to de-escalate and things like that. And in the U.S., in some systems, you can get into prison as an 18-year-old prison guard with just, you know, three or four weeks of training. Um, and, you know, it's their job is framed as just make sure the person doesn't escape. Right. And rather than also including this kind of therapeutic uh, component. And I mean, treating people obviously with dignity is really important. Um, and that can create an atmosphere where um, uh, basically, you know, people in prison are a lot less likely to resort to violence if they feel like, yes, I'm not glad that I'm here, but I'm being treated like a human being. And if I have concerns, there's a grievance process that I can use and that, that be taken seriously. So I, I really think this idea really gets to this, this issue of procedural justice, which we also see in the policing field, right? If a police officer pulls you over, you're not going to be happy about probably what comes out of that if you even if it's just getting a ticket right but you the officer should tell you why he pulls you over it ought to be you know courteous um and we ought to give people a chance to express their own voice um and hopefully feel like that the system is is legitimate that they're being heard they're being treated fairly um even if they don't end up liking the results so um a lot of this does get back to um how do we uh uh create um, uh, an atmosphere inside our um, prisons and jails that is not adversarial between um, the correctional officers and those that they're um, supervising, but but instead um, one in which you know there's a level of trust and um, that there's um, I mean we I saw in Norway some of the activity officers, both them and the uh, the, the 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 people incarcerated are wearing street clothes, right? They're playing soccer together. It's a completely different, um, and no one's worried about being attacked, right? Um, so, you know, when we think about the reason why most people in the in, in our society as a whole, most people don't commit crimes is partly kind of a uh, social pressure that they feel some type, type of attachment to their neighborhood, their neighbors, their neighborhood, their community, and they don't want to uh, uh, mess things up. Um, and so if you can create to, as much as possible, this sense of that we're all on the same team, even behind bars, that's going to make a huge difference. And that's the dynamic security that, you know, ends up, you know, uh, enabling you not just to depend on, you know, things like bars, handcuffs, uh, fences, and all of that as your only means of security. Why is solitary confinement a bad idea? Well, 
overall, like now the definition is important to consider. You know, I think that that it's uh, essentially the standard Mandela rules would be 22 hours or more of um, being in a cell, you know. Um, and so, for example, in the federal system, there's, you know, in many instances, two people are, are under, quote, solitary confinement. They're in their cell for 23 hours a day uh, in, in, in some federal prisons, for example. So, but that's still solitary confinement, even though that's another, there's another person there. So um, I think the, um, uh, but what we find is they're, 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 they're can be an instance certainly where somebody who's in prison uh, commits a heinous act against a correctional officer or against someone else who's incarcerated and that they need a timeout. Um, and so, you know, having someone, the other aspect of the definition is for a certain number of, of days, for 14 days or more, for example. So having somebody be um, uh, kind of put into this, uh, whether you call it solitary confinement or administrative segregation, this type of a, a different um, housing for a short period uh, to uh, address a serious issue like that, that's something that, that, that you know, has a role. But uh, we have people that have been in solitary confinement for years in the United States. And um, we know from the research, the uh, effect on both their mental and physical health is, is uh, very deleterious. Um, and, um, you know, just the lack of natural light, for example, is uh, affects our body in many ways. And um, the, obviously, the lack of human stimulation of any type of conversation with with another person um, is is um, uh, very damaging. And so there's a great deal of research showing the health uh, repercussions of extended uh, solitary confinement. And so, um, and then the other thing we identified was this, fortunately, most correction systems have moved away from this, but we, you know, there are examples of people released directly to the public from solitary confinement. And, and unsurprisingly, uh, there was some research on uh, a supermax prison, which is essentially a prison that is all solitary confinement. And they found, of course, that those who uh, were released directly to the street from solitary confinement had a much higher rate of particularly violent uh, recidivism, even after adjusting for all other factors. And that those who had been stepped down for at least a uh, period, you know, in other words, they were uh, no longer in solitary in the several months leading up to their release, their numbers were more similar to those who had never been in solitary in terms of recidivism. So it comes back to what I said before, that the system uh, too often kind of says this is what's convenient for those running the prison without regard to what's in the public interest uh, after incarceration. You've spoken in the past about the future of the criminal justice system. What does it look like? Well, that's a great question. And um, I think that uh, um, there's so, we obviously don't have a crystal ball, but I think um, the good news is over the last few decades, there have been a lot of advances that have had real benefits. And so um, I mentioned earlier, objective actuarial risk and needs assessments that that uh, provide whether it's a parole board or a judge with something other than kind of their gut feeling to go on in making decisions. Uh, I don't think anybody has suggested that those should replace uh, the, the role of, of humans, um, but certainly to inform decisions. So that's that's an example. And of course, we've had um, new techniques come into play. We, we have uh, drug and other problem-solving courts, mental health courts, veterans courts that have uh, moved the needle that, you know, we didn't have veterans courts when people came back from Vietnam. We still don't have enough. Uh, but that's um, uh, 
that's an example of an advance that we've seen. And then, you know, the the monitoring technologies is much more of a mixed bag. It, it, the uh, I think that there can be a role for some of them, and obviously. It, we have examples of, I talked earlier about the, the uh, text messaging, reminding people of their hearing and also giving them directions on how to get there um, and apps. I mean, now you have apps that can people can use that, um, for example, they can reschedule their court date because they're, they're sick or their child's sick. Whereas before they might've had to file uh, some piece of paper and in many instances, you know, didn't have an attorney. So they just didn't do it. And they ended up getting a failure to appear and a warrant for their arrest. So apps to interact with the court system to interact with or online uh judge scott schlegel is a great pioneer in this area in louisiana uh with his online programs but basically you know it gives the way for people to uh interact with, and also with their probation officer and this really took off during the pandemic um that that people could use the app or zoom meetings and things to um uh basically have um to check-ins and have um you know, be able to uh, have notifications going both ways that would have otherwise been very cumbersome or wouldn't have occurred at all. And of course, we found that the rate of people missing hearings and missing appointments with their probation officers was, was much lower with Zoom than uh, in person, partly because you didn't have transportation, childcare, other challenges. So um, I think most systems that I've seen have kept some level of this. Obviously, for there's cases where, uh, particularly with high-risk individuals, there's a real need for in-person um, interaction and using things like motivational interviewing that are going to work better in person than than through a, a, a you know an app or the computer. So um, that's one. So we have all these areas where technology has really uh, helped move us forward. Um, I think you know, looking into the future, there are certainly concerns too. Um, obviously with AI, for example, and, and some of the um, other um, uh, developments we've seen. I mean, there was a study um, uh, with uh, folks who have ALS that couldn't speak. And now if they've got something, basically they're in some device that surrounds their brain, they're able to, uh, a computer is able to respond to their stimuli, um, what they wanted to do without having to you know because these they, they don't have the mobility of their their arms either but they're able to just uh the basically the device they're attached to is is interpreting their thoughts and, and telling the computer to do this or that and so one could imagine eventually that it's quite possible that that um if people are having you know evil thoughts about committing a crime maybe that's going to be detected in some way and are they going to be subject to consequences for that um I'd say no, because right, I mean, we 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 have a um people can say and think a lot of different things and they have a right to do that, but but when you actually uh you know obviously commit uh an action, that's what the where the criminal justice system comes in. So, but I do think there are certainly legitimate privacy concerns that people have. I think we we ha there's there's important distinctions. Like for example, if you're on pretrial services supervision, the government still needs a warrant to search your home. Whereas if you're on probation because you've already been convicted, you give up that protection. So we have to keep those types of um, uh, guardrails in mind. Um, and I think that you know it's a it's a bit tricky because um, in some instances when somebody commits, for example, a, a really low level misdemeanor, if they end up being assessed, um, it's actually found they have you know more serious challenges that could benefit from a treatment program or whatnot. And but we have to be careful because if you've got something that's a classy misdemeanor that someone couldn't even be jailed for, um, 
that doesn't really justify kind of the system sinking their teeth into that person and saying, you've got to go to some, you know, uh, program, residential program for six months, you know, so a lot of times there's this real um, mismatch between the offense that's committed and what um, we might think the person needs in terms of um, uh level of services. So um, that's that's a, um, a, a, a that's going to continue to be a challenge, I think. But uh, if it is truly a beneficial and therapeutic program, even if, you know, they haven't done something that gives the system kind of the leverage to force them into it, if it's really a, uh, uh, I think in many cases, someone might say, okay, I'll, I'll do that, even though maybe I don't have to, because I think it'll help me. So, you know, we have to kind of make sure that we're um, kind of taking advantage of opportunities to help people um, get on track, but we're also keeping in mind the proportionality of the system and also the fact that even though people um, uh, do give up some uh, liberties based on the, you know, uh, events they commit, that it's got to be, um, uh, there's got to be some, um, uh, some limitations around that that are, that are relevant to both uh, the, you know, what the potential punishment is for the offense as well as what their their needs are. So I think we're going to continue to um, have to sort that out. But overall, I, I, I'm pretty optimistic that uh, technology is, is um, uh, provided that we use it in the right way and in the right circumstances can really help us achieve better outcomes. Well, Ms. Levin, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Very much appreciate it once again. Oh, thank you.